Hear the word of our Lord from Galatians chapter 4, beginning in the first verse. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now today, we're going to talk about a controversial topic, but one that is not very controversial to us Lutherans, or any other Protestant for that matter. We're going to be talking about the filioque and the son. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun because Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians have been arguing about the filioque for almost a thousand years. Almost a thousand. And here we Protestants are going, um, what's, what's the big idea? What's the, what's the deal here? Um, this, this doesn't seem like something to really fight about. It's, it's just a part of the Nicene Creed, right? And the moment you say that, then the arguments shine forth like fire two people fighting fire with fire, and that leads to further arguments about who is the right church and who is the wrong church. Where does this come from? Well, let's dive right into it. In 325, we were given the original Nicene Creed. Everybody already kind of understood what the Christian faith was. We had the basics, and personally, I suspect that the Apostles' Creed really was written by the Apostles. I don't care if somebody calls me a dum-dum for saying that. I really do believe it. But with that, we got some problems. Without Christianity having a good summary of everything a Christian believes, you're going to have a lot of people trying to make up what they think Christianity says. And of course, that's what Arius did. He denied the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He denied the divinity and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He was a Jehovah's Witness of his day, and it caused all sorts of chaos and violence and everything in the Christian church. The body of Christ was caught flat-footed. Why? Because we have a bad habit as the church of not really defining the faith or asking our own questions until some heretic gets up there and says something that is patently, blatantly wrong. Arius, by denying the Trinity, which again, that was around. People believed God the Father is God, Jesus Christ is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. There is only one God, yet these three persons are distinct. People had been believing that since, well, Pentecost. That's what people understood. It's not like the church had this stupid, primitive theology where nobody understood the divinity of Jesus. No, people were worshiping Jesus. And they were worshiping the Holy Spirit. The scriptures demonstrate that. But the fact of the matter remains is that this wasn't taught very effectively. It wasn't summarized. It wasn't encapsulated until Nicaea. 
in which all the fighting between normal Christians and the Aryans culminated in a very long process of figuring out how do we summarize the faith. So here is the original Nicene Creed, AD 325. We believe in one God, the Father, ruler of all, maker of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, who for us and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, being made a man. He suffered, and the third day he arose, and he ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, what's the problem there? <laughs> what's the problem with that? That expands a little bit on what we would see in the Apostles' Creed. That expands just a little bit to address the problem. But it leaves out yet more. Now, if you go to church every Sunday and you confess the Nicene Creed, or maybe you wait until Trinity Sunday or Communion, whenever you do it, you'll find that the Nicene Creed you confess with your co-parishioners is a lot longer than that. This is just a bumped-up statement of divinity in Christ with a little bit of a nod to the gospel and saying, yes, we believe in the Trinity. That's not enough. That really isn't enough to keep heretics at bay. You're going to see problems from people who still want to deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have issues with, say, patripassianism. You're going to have issues from the modalists. There's no distinction here presented in the original Nicene Creed between the persons of Christ. So you still have all these issues. So what did they do? Well, these heresies keep cropping up, so we get the Nicene Creed of the First Council of Constantinople, 381, just a little bit over 50 years later. And it reads, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried. In the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father." From thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's a lot more detailed, huh? Sounds a lot more like what you confess every Sunday or every time you do the Nicene Creed at church. It's more expansive, almost in a way to preempt a lot of other potential heresies. Let's take a look at this. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, there are no other sons of God, capital S, sons here. 
And let's see, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Okay, we're pretty samey territory here. And then he says, by whom all things were made. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Ah, now we are trying to argue that Yes, the Holy Ghost had a role in the Incarnation, all right. And, by the way, the Virgin Mary was truly a virgin when our Lord Jesus was born. We are not allowing you to deny the virgin birth. That's important. Now we're going to go against Nestorianism this way because the Nestorian heretics could not say Theotokos in good conscience. And, by the way, Let's look here where it says he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. In the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. So just in case we read the original Nicene Creed which says he suffered and the third day he rose again. Well in case anybody wants to get hung up on the details, here are the details. Here is what every Christian will believe. Here is our common confession of faith. So nobody can deny Pontius Pilate. Nobody can deny that he was buried, that he actually died. Go to the scriptures. They're going to teach you about this. And we see more and more of this stuff. Finally, they get to the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceedeth from the Father and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. By the way, Arian leftovers, by the way, Pneumatomachians, the heretics that deny the divinity and personhood of the Holy Spirit, uh, guess what, pal? Yes, the Holy Spirit is God. He is worshipped with the Father and the Son. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is the one who gave you the Bible, so you should be very, very careful to worship him and not deny that he is divine. Period. There. Problem solved, right? The Christian faith has been totally defined. We understand now everything that we believe, and there will be no more heretics, right? Wait a minute. Did somebody come up with more heresies after that? Ah, dang it! Now we gotta do yet more to deal with this. At least so it was thought in the Western Roman Church. The idea being that, hey, if the church screwed up the first time with an insufficient creed, and then they came out with a more updated creed that would preempt other heresies from arising, well, uh, it just looks like they didn't do quite enough. Because now people are saying, well, you could say all that stuff about the Holy Spirit, but now I'm a subordinationist. And now people are going, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, um, so like, Jesus is God, but he's less God than God the Father. And since like the Holy Spirit also comes down from the Father, like only, then that means that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are like lesser gods. And even if they have some connection with God the Father, we can kind of still be Arians, you know. Or they'll say, like, yeah, um, I'm seeing some partialism here, you know. That, that God the Father is, like, the most biggest slice of the God pie. And then, like, Jesus over here is connected to him. And he's, like, one... 25th God, and then the Holy Spirit is like 10% God. Other things like that kept cropping up. Heresy never dies. 
It will not die until Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Western Church, there was a habit of adding in the filioque in the 600s. As a liturgical practice, it kind of made sense. It would guard against these odd things that were showing up in Western Europe. But there is a problem, because eventually this grows as a practice in Rome until it is finally the liturgical practice of the Western Church under the Bishop of Rome. And the Eastern churches go, uh, hey, wait a second. Do you remember Canon 7 of the Council of Ephesus, Third Ecumenical Council? <laughs> Clearly you didn't. Let's go ahead and read it. When these things had been read, the Holy Synod decreed that it is unlawful for any man to bring forward or to write or to compose a different faith as a rival to that established by the Holy Fathers, assembled with the Holy Ghost in Nicaea. But those who shall dare to compose a different faith, or to introduce or offer it to persons desiring to turn to the acknowledgement of the truth, whether from heathenism or from Judaism or from any heresy whatsoever, shall be deposed. If they be bishops or clergymen, bishops from the episcopate and clergymen from the clergy, and if they be laymen, they shall be anathematized. And in like manner, if any, whether bishops, clergymen, or laymen, should be discovered to hold or teach the doctrines contained in the exposition introduced by the presbyter Charisius concerning the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God, or the abominable and profane doctrines of Nestorius, which are subjoined, they shall be subjected to the sentence of this holy and ecumenical synod. So that if it be a bishop, he shall be removed from his bishopric and degraded. If it be a clergyman, he shall likewise be stricken from the clergy. And if it be a layman, he shall be anathematized, as has been aforesaid. How do we summarize that? If you change this, you're out. If you go about changing this, you are anathematized. You are defrocked. You are no longer a bishop or a priest or even a layman. We are excommunicating you. Period. End of story. Now the question though arises with, well, what do you mean, if anyone? You read the hard text of what's just said there, then, well, that's Nicaea. But what about Constantinople? Was that changing the faith or just adding to it, defining it more clearly. Well, nobody has a problem with that. So the Bishop of Rome says, well, let's let's put in the filioque here and pronounce it as a part of the creed. Unfortunately, uh, the Eastern churches did not feel like that was legitimate. It says if you change the faith, or if you add to the faith, if you introduce a different faith to compete with the current faith, then you are out. And then the Latin theologians are like, that's not what we're doing here. This is right doctrine. We are presenting that as a liturgical practice for this. And besides, don't you understand that the Pope in Rome has primus inter pares, first among equals, authority among the five bishops in communion? He has the right to do this to take care of the heresies that are cropping up in Spain. And then the Eastern Orthodox churches go, you don't have the right to do that. And uh, besides the doctrine that is not correct, my goodness, what are you doing? This changes everything. Just from the words, filioque. Now, what is filioque? And I believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque in Latin. The idea being that, yes, 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is eternally generated of the Father. It's a little bit of inside baseball into the Trinity. God the Father is the Father. He is always begetting the Son. The Son is always the firstborn. He is always being begotten. It's a confusing doctrine, very mysterious, sure. But something similar is said about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, our Lord Jesus Christ says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And by the way, our Lord Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So just as the Son is always being begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit is always proceeding from the Father. It's a different dynamic, again, also very mysterious. In Galatians chapter 4 and elsewhere in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. He's his Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. He is also called the Spirit of Christ. Well, if there's no procession from Christ, then Scripture either has a different dynamic that St. Paul and others are referring to, or truly, they just lied. Well, I'm not going to deny Scripture, so either there's a different dynamic that we don't quite understand here regarding the relationship between the Logos and the Holy Spirit, or we look at John chapter 14 where Jesus says he too is going to be sending the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. We see him called the Holy Spirit of Christ, and we say, all right, this means that the Holy Spirit proceeds from Christ. Filio quae. All right, no problem. Uh, this is the endless debate. Again, it's been a thousand years almost. And it's a big issue. Because I personally, and Lutherans will confess that the Pope got it right. The Magisterium of Rome was correct. Yes, the Holy Spirit proceeds filioque. It's just true. But did they have the right to change the creed? Did the Pope really have the supreme authority to maybe go against Canon 7 of Ephesus? I would tell you that it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. This was no excuse for the great schism that followed in which East and West became separate entities. This was no cause for the mutual anathemas that were hurled around by both parties at each other. Mutual excommunications, all sorts of drama over this. It was no excuse. You know what they should have done? Called another council. Hashed it out. Why not? Why can't you do that? After all, there is language that sounds quite a bit like the filioque clause in the Athanasian Creed and in other miniature councils out there that even the Church of the East had introduced before the uh, Nestorian Schism, so to speak. This was already a thing. And it had been a thing for 600, 700 years at that time. It's just now that it was getting big. I suspect that at the time, the churches and the theologians here excommunicating each other and starting up this fight did not understand the severity of what they were doing. It was like an internet battle, an internet fight or something, a hell thread where friendships are just destroyed over the minor disagreements that people have. That if they were in the same room, wouldn't be that big of a deal. It wouldn't be caused to destroy the friendship here, but, oh, it's online. Therefore, oops, now you're not friends anymore and you're never going to see each other again. This was all done. All these arguments over the filioque leading up to the Great Schism in 1054 
they were done basically over snail mail. These were letters being sent back and forth. People never got in a room and hashed it out until it was too stinking late and the churches were in schism. And besides that, with the rising tide of Islam starting to uh, take territory in eastern parts, uh, it's not like you could just walk over there and talk to people. It was dangerous. Now, they did try to fix it a few centuries later. There was a supposed Council of Florence where they tried to hash it out, and the Patriarch of Constantinople was there, and they're arguing. The Greeks were saying, you changed the faith, and the Latins were saying, we did not change anything but the words. The meaning is still there. Ah, now we have a problem where the creed itself, uh, that's fine, but the canons here regarding the changing of the faith, it didn't say changing the words. That was the Latin argument. So what are you doing schisming still? And, okay, at first we might say, all right, an agreement should have been made there, right? <laughs> that should have cleared it up. Is it letter of the law or spirit of the law? What are we doing here? Well, depending on who you ask, if you ask the papacy, they'll say, oh yeah, the, uh, the Eastern patriarchs and bishops voted in agreement with what we were saying. And then the uh, Greek Orthodox will say, um, no, this wasn't binding. Uh, besides, there was kind of a war going on. So great, we had one chance to actually have a council that would have fixed this problem, but it didn't work because a hundred years later at the Synod of Jerusalem, the Eastern Orthodox Church condemned everybody who would not believe that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father alone. Great, now it's deeper. Now what's really at heart here? Because honestly, the Filioque Clause was something that had been supported by various church fathers, even Cyril. Another take I'm going to have for you. This is the clash of two very, very deeply unbiblical doctrines keeping true doctrine and unity from prevailing among the churches of Jesus Christ. On the one half, you have people who see the papacy as the head of the church. Antichristos, in the place of Christ. After all, he's called the vicar of Christ, right? Antichristos, that's where you get that term. Oh, you have a lot of people saying he's this super infallible ruler and he can never be wrong on anything. He can never even commit so much as a process crime, right? We can't forget that it was only a couple centuries later that we have Unam Sanctam, which the Pope Boniface writes, basically declaring himself the ruler of the entire world in every respect. He's king of the world. Mm -mm. Not saying every single Roman Catholic is really making the Pope into this idol here, but that theology was starting to get crystallized just a little bit by the time the Great Schism happened. Meanwhile, in the churches of the East, they've always had a problem with ecclesiolatry, worship of their church where absolutely everything has to be so binding through the church, capital T tradition, that there is no wiggle room. You only have wiggle room on what we allow you to have wiggle room on. And if there's any questions that are unanswered, things that need to get done, problems that arise, we are going to ignore it until a council happens. So just um, chalk it up to mystery until then, bucko, because the church is the vehicle of salvation. Deal with it. 
the notion that the church has such utmost authority that every single syllable of every single word that you pronounce whenever you recite the creed has to be exactly correct or you are anathematized. That's basically what that canon is saying, by the way. You've got to realize that. This is a church saying you are damned if you mispronounce a word and mean it. This is a church saying that. So the Lutheran response, I believe, is to say, well, according to the letter of the law, the Eastern churches are right. Something should have been done about that. According to the spirit of the law, and especially true doctrine here, the Latins were right. It shouldn't matter. You should not have a massive catastrophic schism over a single word here. But we understand that both of the doctrines behind the schism, papal supremacy versus uh, ecclesial supremacy, however I'm supposed to say that, uh, those are going to clash in such a way that all it took was one single word to knock that house of cards apart. It's stupid. It really is. You should go with right doctrine no matter what. And if there is a process crime, you address that. You just work through it and you talk about it to maintain unity until the matter is settled. They did this in the first Council of Nicaea. It took painful deliberation constantly to make sure they got it right. This happened with the first seven ecumenical councils. Hard work, hard stuff eating your feelings, eating your emotions. And if there's a doctrine behind this that says, I'm right no matter what, versus the other guy who has a doctrine behind this disagreement that says, I'm right no matter what, you put those little things aside and you hash it out on the merits of the theology itself. End of story, end of discussion. So the Lutherans here, we retain this tradition of filioque because we agree with it. And it is not a big deal if a couple words are maybe a little bit different. After all, when you translate things, things are going to be different, right? The wording is going to be different and you have to maintain the spirit of the message or else it's a mess. Did you know that if you actually did a 100% word-for-word translation of Koine Greek into English for the New Testament, you don't have it at all? There are entire words. One word in Greek can be like half a paragraph in English. You have to maintain the spirit of the text, the construction of everything. And if the Latin father said, listen, this is what it's getting at, this is what it means, and we have to maintain the truth here, well, then they're just addressing the same problems that there were with the first Nicene Creed that had to be updated in Constantinople in 381. That's what they're doing. Should they have called an entire council to figure out this one measly word here? Maybe. Maybe not. But I don't think they were wrong to do it. They were wrong to justify it with papal supremacy, absolutely, but they weren't wrong with what they did. So, since Lutherans here do not respect the idea of a 100% infallible magisterium, we can take the canon laws of the councils and go, we're going to keep the creed. We're going to be happy with that. No big deal. Now let's try to hopefully be, uh, be friends here in spite of that. Oh, it's not going to happen. Not till Christ returns, huh? Anyway, I hope that suffices as a brief take, a brief explanation on the Lutheran take for the filioque controversy. Again, I'm sure other Lutheran theologians would disagree with me. I'm sure plenty of people would side with the East on that one while retaining the filioque 
due to its doctrinal truth. They would say, you know, well, the, the Pope is the Antichrist, and he did wrong here, so it should have been changed and solved a different way. Okay, cool, we can disagree a little bit on that. But until then, be nice to your friends from other denominations, please. Like, we don't need yet another great schism. Not quite yet. Maybe for Lutheranism, but that's a whole different broadcast. <laughs> All right, catch y'all next week. Amen and amen.